Focus on Headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, joining us in the studio today, we have our reporters in Lee Ji-young and Chang Hana. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. Good evening to you guys. We have been talking about all of yesterday. Yesterday marked the 70th anniversary of the Korean War Armistice Agreement. Uh, of course, uh, it's called something completely different over in North Korea. It's Victory Day because they claim that they have won the war. Well, technically, the war is not done and over with. It's just a season. Fire, uh, but nevertheless, we do you know uh, we did have a number of events uh, happening here in South Korea as well, uh, because uh, the the Armistice Day also is the UN Forces Participation Day, because the UN Forces, the UNC, uh, of course, co- uh, took part in the Korean War as well. Now, in a ceremony commemorating the historic day, President Yoon Suk-yeol spoke about South Korea's commitment to uphold freedom, peace, and prosperity uh, in the world. Uh, Jiang, can you tell us about the? details of the event. Uh, sure, SJ. Now, the ceremony took place at the Busan Cinema Center, which played a crucial war during the Korean, uh, crucial role during the Korean War as a military airfield. And it was a somber and poignant event where President Yoon personally greeted 62 surviving veterans representing the 22 countries that fought alongside South Korea under the banner of the United Nations Command. Now, President Yoon emphasized that South Korea will never forget the sacrifices and the blood shed by the UN allies during the war, and he committed to standing alongside other liberal democracies and a vow rooted in the strong alliance between the Republic of Korea and the United States. Now, earlier in the day, President Yoon and First Lady Kim Gunny visited a significant site by beginning their day by paying their respects at the United Nations Memorial Center, a cemetery, Memorial Cemetery in Busan. Now, this cemetery is significant as it is the only UN cemetery in the world, and it's where more than 2,300 soldiers from the Korean War lie at rest. Now, it was a profound moment that uh, underscored the theme of freedom by dedication future by alliance uh, that President Yoon has been highlighting. Now, this was certainly a day of remembrance and reaffirmation of South Korea's commitment to freedom and its alliance with its partners. All the more because the Korean War is often called the Forgotten War. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is, I believe, South Korea is one of the few or only country that uh, continues to uh, remember and treat the, the Korean War veterans. Uh, we've talked about how during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, when there was a lack of uh, facial face masks, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, they sent boxes and kits uh, to uh, some of the uh, the Korean War veterans. And from what I understand, this uh, UN, uh, UN cemetery uh, is very special in that a number of uh, f- soldiers who fought in the Korean War have said that if they do end up uh, passing away, that they would be lo- uh, they would love to be buried at the UN cemetery, and so qu- holds a quite a significance uh, with this. And uh, again, till this day, uh, the war is unfortunately not done and over with, and uh, we do remember the sacrifices made by uh, not just the South Korean soldiers, the U.S. soldiers, but the U- uh, UNC, the, all the uh, countries that took part in that very war. Again, we mentioned how it's 
so interesting how North Korea views uh, Armistice Day. Uh, technically, the war is not done and over with, uh, but again, they call it Victory Day. And as as we know, here in South Korea, because it's just Armistice Day, uh, we say we commemorate uh, Armistice Day. We don't say we celebrate mm-hmm. uh, Armistice Day because technically we are still at war. And the right. Korean War, of course, led to... Uh, just way too many deaths is what we do. But uh, North Korea, they, they celebrate it because it's 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 Victory Day, right? So we saw feverish ceremony mm-hmm. that North Korea held on the night of uh, July 27th. North Korean leader standing in the center, flanked by representatives from China and Russia. Important to note that it is the first time since the pandemic that they've opened the borders and invited uh, foreign delegations. Uh, Hannah, are you going to tell us more about this? Sure. Now, facing the square to Kim's right was Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu and to his left was Lee Hong-sung, the first-ranking vice chairman of the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress. Now, this scene symbolizes China and Russia's support for North Korea, which is being increasingly isolated from the international community for its development of illegal nuclear and missile programs. Now, China and Russia, both uh, permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, have been neutralizing the international community's response to North Korea's ballistic missile provocations by defending Pyongyang every time it comes up for a vote. And this time, the three allies have gathered in Pyongyang this week to celebrate North Korea's Victory Day in the war that ravaged the Korean Peninsula seven decades ago as they align over another very contemporary conflict, which is Russia's devastating invasion of Ukraine. So North Korean leader Kim Jong-un gave Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu a tour of a defense exposition in Pyongyang on Wednesday with images from North Korean media, showing them walking past an array of weaponry from Pyongyang's nuclear-capable ballistic missiles to its newest drones. And at a state reception for Shoigu and the Russian delegation, in a reference to the war in Ukraine, North Korean Defense Minister Kang Sun-nam expressed Pyongyang's full support for the just struggle of the Russian army and people to defend the sovereignty and security of the country, according to a report from the state-run Korean Korean Central News Agency, the KCNA. Defend the sovereignty and security of the country when the war in Ukraine started with the invasion of Ukraine. It's quite interesting. It's also very uh, interesting that it's the Russian uh, defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, who mm-hmm. uh, attended the ceremony because a lot of people are saying, well, if, it, if it's that big and 70th again, uh, North Korea puts a whole lot of significance in uh, fives and 10-year anniversaries. And because it's the 70, uh, it's, it's a major uh, event. So they thought maybe Sergei Lavrov would be mm-hmm. attending. Uh, the foreign minister of Russia will be attending this. But it, there is a whole lot of de- uh, significance in the Russian defense minister, as Russia, I believe, is still trying to get uh, North Korea to get involved with the supply mm-hmm. of ammunitions, for instance, uh, in, in helping Ukraine. But uh, North Korea, although they say they haven't been helping, there's been reports saying that they've been secretly selling ammunition uh, or whatnot. But uh, it is interesting uh, with uh, Sergei Shogov, uh, sorry, uh, Shoigu, uh, attending this ceremony. Uh, Pyongyang, of course. One of the reasons why we watch these military parades carefully is if there is any new military weapons that they showcase. And of course, uh, as they always do, they showcased a range of weapons at yesterday's military parade. Uh, Among them were the latest unmanned aerial vehicles or drones, uh, not to mention the intercontinental ballistic missiles, whether it be the Hwasong-17 or the 18. Uh, Jill, let's get the details on that. Uh, Sure, SJ. Now, the Korean Central News Agency reported that newly developed 
developed drones were part of the show. And these aren't your run-of-the-mill drones. They're actually strategic unmanned reconnaissance aircraft and multi-purpose attack drones. And these new weapons took to the skies over the parade, showing off their capabilities. Now, these drones first unveiled at the Armed Equipment Exhibition 2023, uh, and then as uh, uh, the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and Russian Defense Minister Sir- Sergei uh, Shogui on Wednesday visited this event. And uh, if you're wondering, yes, these drones do look a bit like the U.S.'s RQ-4 Global Hawk and MQ-9 Reaper. Now, when it comes to the ICBMs, North Korea really didn't hold back. Um, they showed off the Hwasong-18, which is the their latest solid fuel ICBM, and the second red flag unit of the Missile Bureau led the parade carrying these behemoths. Now, the KCNA describes these missiles as the strongest means of the country's strategic forces, And they believe these weapons can respond overwhelmingly to any nuclear war threats or acts of aggression. And interestingly, the previously most potent missile, which is the liquid-fueled ICBM Hwasong-17, was also carried by a mobile launcher that received the title of Hero. Interesting stuff there. Uh, was there any other significant military hardware on display? Yeah, there was uh, quite a few, SJ. Uh, they sh- actually showcased uh, various uh series of strategic weapon units, uh, including tanks, uh, um, mechanized infantry, aviation, and artillery regiments. And these units were actually leading the parade before the ICBMs took the spotlight. And the recent North Korean military parade also brought something intriguing to light as well. Uh, remember the Heir? We actually talked about this Heir on the show. Uh, it's a supposed nuclear power underwater drone that North Korea first announced they were developing and testing back on March 24th. And this very weapon, which North Korea alleges to be a nuclear torpedo, was also spotted taking its place in the ranks of the military parade. Uh, But something noteworthy uh, noteworthy here is uh, that compared to the parade of the 75th anniversary of the People's Army last Friday, February. It, oh, excuse me, last February, it appears that North Korea didn't roll out any new weapons this time, apart from the drones that we saw the day before. Yeah, again, I mean, that was the consensus, right? A lot of experts were saying that although they're going to be watching this military parade for uh, maybe any new potential major uh, weapons to be displayed, they didn't think that North Korea had the capability to form something new. And so they've already showcased the Hwasong-18 intercontinental ballistic missile before. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was, I believe, the last sort of new major weapons that they showcased. And other than that, uh, I mean, there's no word on uh, Hwasong-19. I'm sure, I mean, Hwasong-18 seems to, the solid fuel Hwasong-18 seems to be the big one right now. And so, um, again, uh, the the drones, though, uh, it is a bit alarming because I've Although it wasn't an attack drone uh, late last year, we did see a a spy drone uh, enter South Korean territory sent in by uh, North Korea prior to this. Uh, Again, interesting uh, revelations over in North Korea. There's still uh, quite a bit of uh, tension on the Korean Peninsula and uh, whether or not uh, there was speculations as to whether or not uh, Victory Day in North Korea was going to be met by some major provocation. Fortunately, we haven't seen any of that. And uh, uh, there seems to be uh, no nuclear test 
or any kind of signs of a nuclear test neither. So good news on that front. Let's move on. The Japanese government's defense white paper published this year uh, reiterated its claim to deterrence of the Tokyo Islands for the 19th year. Can't believe this. Uh, but it did express a positive assessment of uh, recent security cooperation, saying that it would uh, communicate closely with the South Korean side. Of course, in light of recent moves to improve relations uh, between Seoul and Tokyo. Uh, Hannah, let's get more on this. Sure. Uh, now, the Japanese government adopted the 2023 defense white paper at a cabinet meeting chaired by Prime Minister Fumio Kishida on Friday. Now, in this year's uh, white paper, Japan used the same language as last year to describe the security environment around it, stating that the territorial issues of the so-called Northern Territories, which is the Japanese term for the four Kuril Islands, and Takeshima, which is, of course, uh, Japan's claimed name for Tokyo which are inherent to Japan, remained unresolved. Japan also depicted a Russian aircraft at the location of Tokyo on a map titled Military Trends of Neighboring Countries Since 2013, with the caption Takeshima Airspace Violation. Now, when a Russian military aircraft violated Tokyo's airspace in 2019, Japan scrambled its self-defense forces, military aircraft, and claimed that its territorial waters had been violated. Now, Takeshima was also labeled on their uh, other maps, such as the location map of the self-defense forces and the surveillance images of the surrounding waters and airspace. However, Japan has included many positive statements about South Korea in its defense white paper, such as we agreed on the importance of strengthening deterrence and response capabilities through trilateral security cooperation, reflecting the friendly atmosphere that has been developed between the two countries since the March summit between President Yoon and Prime Minister uh, Kishida. And in fact, the GSOMIA, a bilateral security agreement between South Korea and Japan to share sensitive military and intelligence information, which had been on shaky grounds for some time, due to conflicts between the two countries was normalized in March, and a plan to share North Korean missile warning information among the three countries in real time is also underway. Now, a Japanese government official called the security cooperation between the two countries increasingly important and progressive. Look, uh, fortunately, over the past uh, less than or maybe a year now, uh, we have seen uh, quite a bit of uh, improved relations between Seoul and Tokyo, mm -hmm. that's for sure. And I think there is a lot to be won, a lot to gain uh, out of positive relations between the two countries. But one thing that we have learned also is that Japan just refuses, refuses uh, to undo its wrongs when it comes to historical issues. We've seen uh, some frustration on uh, South Korean side when it comes to, of course, the compensation for the forced laborers, uh, where it just seems like it's just one-sided, right? The South Korean governments and the South Korean uh, companies are involved with the, the fund there. Uh, and, uh, Japan refuses uh, to take part in the compensation process and no apology has been issued, despite the fact that all of this stems from the forced labor uh, done by the Japanese companies like Mitsubishi Heavy Industries and uh, Nippon Steel uh, Industries and so forth. Uh, and of course, despite the fact that there has been improved ties, uh, there is continuous false claims of Tokyo uh, being their uh, uh, territory, which, I mean, they could pull off all these maps all they want, but the fact of the matter is, from what I understand, they also found some really ancient map from Japan, from Japan, written in Japanese, that uh, Tokyo was, uh, is, 
South Korean territory. So I don't know why they keep making up these stuff, and it really is frustrating, and there's no improvement on the historical aspects of the, the two countries there. Uh, Hannah, what about other countries? Uh, did the white paper review the security concerns of its uh, neighboring countries besides South Korea? Yes, uh, sure it did. So Japan said the international community has entered a new era of crisis facing its greatest challenge since World War II, and the competition between the United States and China has intensified. Now, it assessed that the military buildup around Japan, including nuclear and missile capabilities, is advancing rapidly. And furthermore, in its defense white paper, the Japanese government highlighted security concerns posed by North Korea and its neighbors, including China and Russia. So Japan described North Korea's nuclear and missile development as a grave and imminent threat to the security of our country, which is Japan, in last year's white paper. But this time it added the phrase even more so than before, which underscored North Korea's growing threat. Now, in terms of China, the white paper pointed out that China has increased its military activities around Taiwan, raising international concerns about the peace and security of the Taiwan Strait, which is indispensable to the stability and prosperity of the international community. And it also notes that Russia's invasion of Ukraine, coupled with its active military presence in the Far East, raises strong security concerns, as does the strategic cooperation between Russia and China. Now, so the defense white paper stated it is necessary to strengthen the defense force to protect people's lives from these security threats. And now to support the strengthening of its defense capabilities, the government has decided to secure approximately 43.5 trillion yen, which is about $396 billion in defense spending over the five-year period from 2023 to 2027. And in addition to working with its ally, the United States, to strengthen its defense capabilities, Japan is also increasing defense cooperation with countries that share basic values under the theme of a free and open Indo-Pacific. It is uh, interesting to see that uh, Japan continues to uh, you know, put in a whole lot of budget into defense mm -hmm. and uh, they have been expressing concerns over North Korea and uh, China for all this time, which, which is why uh, we're seeing more and more of these collaborations, uh, military collaboration with the United States and now uh, South Korea as well. Uh, let's move on, shift our focus to domestic politics. Tensions are rising over President Yoon Suk-yeol's decision to go against the grain in approving the appointment of Kim Young-ho as the Minister of Unification today, uh, despite some serious opposition. We did talk about this, I think, last week or the week before mm -hmm. that, uh, the controversy over the uh, appointment of Kim Young-ho because of his uh, far-right views over North Korea. Chiang, uh, let's get the latest on this. Uh, sure, SJ. Now, a full month has passed since President Yoon Suk-yeol uh, nominated Kim Young-ho, um, who is a political diplomacy professor at Sung-myung Women's University. Now, this was a controversial move with Yoon risking political capital on a nomination that has been met with significant opposition. Uh, initially, when the National Assembly failed to adopt a personal uh, personnel hearing report by the legal deadline, uh, Yoon took the bold step of requesting a resubmission only to be met with silence. And yet the president in a surprising show of uh, assertiveness, moved forward without the National Assembly's approval. Uh, so 
Despite the assembly's non-compliance, President Yoon used his authority to approve Minister Kim's uh, appointment without the hearing report. Now, this move, however, is highly contentious, going against established norms and potentially setting a precarious precedent for future appointments. Uh, later today, President Yoon presented Kim with his official appointment certificate, symbolically asserting his decision despite the outcry. Yeah, I'm just going to make, gonna make a quick uh, correction. Uh, Kim Yong-ho was the president of the Sungshin Women's mm. University and oh. Sung-ya, the, the other uh, women's university mm. there. Uh, but nevertheless, though, adding fuel to the fire, we're hearing the uh, unification ministry is undergoing a significant uh, structural shakeup as well. And this is something that President Yoon Sagyar has called for happening. Yeah, that's right. Um, the minister ministry of unification previously labeled as a North Korea support department by President Yoon himself plans to restructure, cutting its workforce by an alarming 15%. Uh, this could af- uh, potentially affect around 80 personnel, which uh, is a move that has sparked concerns among critics. Uh, four major organizations under the ministry are due to be consolidated, uh, raising eyebrows as to whether this is a veiled attempt at stifling dialogue with North Korea. So essentially, the critics fear that this is an indirect attempt at silencing opposition. Now, the backlash suggests fears of an ulterior motive behind these consolidations, as it could significantly impact ongoing inter-Korean dialogues. However, Vice Minister uh, Minister Moon Seung-yeon argues otherwise. Uh, Moon claims that these changes simply reflect the current standstill in inter-Korean relations and their need for a more flexible and efficient organization. Now, the ministry is also creating a new division dedicated to the matters of abductees, detainees, and prisoners of war, raising questions about the timing of this development amidst the wider reshuffle. Again, I mean, the matters of abductees and detainees and prisoners of war and all those issues are all things that requires dialogue, but it doesn't seem like with the current uh, kind of reformation that you're seeing with the unification ministry that it's possible. And you're right, uh, it does seem to be in line with uh, the hawkish views. uh, And so you know, it is sort of understandable uh, considering the situation right now. But also, we have a number, another nomination, uh, Lee dong who was nominated to lead the Korea Communications Commission on Friday. Uh, he worked as a special advisor on the uh, then-president-elect Yoon Sagir's transition team uh, before being appointed special presidential advisor for external relations in May last year. Now, with E's nomination, uh, there are observations that the promotion of a national task that had been delayed for more than a year will be sped up now. Well, Hannah, fill us in on the latest. Sure. Now, while the nominee will face stiff uh, opposition from the opposition party, the fact that he can be appointed by the president regardless of whether he passes his confirmation hearings makes it likely that a new Korea Communications Commission will be led by Lee dong and it will begin in September. Now, it is expected that various projects and policies of the Korea Communications Commission will gain momentum since the head of the commission will be someone 
who will uh, finally share the same vision and philosophy as President Yoon, which is one and a half years after his inauguration. Now, the commission's hands were tied since October last year after former chairman Han Sang-yeok and key executives were alleged on charges of involvement in giving low scores to right-wing cable channel TV Joseon in the process of renewing its broadcasting license in 2020. Now, the former chairman, who was indicted by prosecutors, was eventually dismissed from his post in late May, and his trial is ongoing, while uh, key executives have been detained for some time. And Gwangju University professor Yoon Sung-nyeon, who chaired the review committee, was recently removed from the KBS board. Now, if Lee joins the commission as its sixth head, he is expected to take over and begin working on the public broadcasting reforms sparked by the TV license fee. And in particular, the government is expected to speed up the reorganization of the board of directors of public broadcasting, citing the UN administration's national task of establishing public fairness in the media sector and restoring public trust. And in December, a relicensing review is also scheduled for major broadcasters, which is expected to strengthen the assessment of public responsibility. And in addition, National tasks related to the commission, such as becoming a global media powerhouse, a digital media world that accompanies the people, and establishing a support system for protecting crime victims, are also expected to gain momentum after Lee takes office. Now, so all eyes are on Lee to see how he organizes his team. All right, uh, let's move on. In other news, uh, South Korea is making strides to bolster its economy and support the well-being of its citizens uh, through a new tax code revision. Now, the government is especially focused on in incentivizing newlyweds, uh, the lower middle class, and uh, interestingly, pet owners as well. Uh, Jiang, uh, these reforms seem to be targeting a broad spectrum of the <laughs> population. Uh, can you break it down for us? Yes, there's quite a few uh, tax codes that uh, are going to be revised. So uh, I'll start off with the new tax revision that was introduced by the finance ministry and it aims to stimulating the domestic economy and the benefits extend to newlyweds and even families planning for children and one major change is an increase in the tax exemption threshold for funds gifted by uh, parents to their children for marriage tripling it from 39,000 to around 117,000 US dollars. Now this is a big move in a country where the gift culture surrounding weddings is quite prominent. Now when it comes to the uh, government's efforts to boost the birth rate, the government plans to up the ante on family allowances, increasing the payment from around $620 to about $780 per child. and. Uh, they're raising the income limit for eligibility as well, so more families can benefit from this new uh, tax break. Now, they're also tackling health care costs where taxpayers can now claim a 15% tax credit on medical expenses that go over 3% of their total income. But the real winner here are actually kids under six because starting next year, they won't have a tax credit limit at all. 
So um, also, it's not just about individuals, but uh, they're covering families and even pets. Uh, the government is throwing a bone to pet owners, too. Uh, more than 100 types of pet medical expenses will be VAT-free starting this October. And to round things off, they're aiming to get people to spend more at traditional markets and on leisure activities. And they're doing this by offering an increased income tax deduction for credit card spendings in these areas from April to December next year. So if all goes to plan, uh, these changes, which will be presented to the National Assembly in September, will be in effect from next year. Uh, let's also talk about another revision here because uh, lawmakers here in the country today passed the Rivers Act revision. And this is uh, responding to the uh, recent catastrophic uh, flooding and landslides following the uh, it's really been a very unusual heavy monsoon rains that we witnessed, especially in the central and southern regions. Uh, this is going to allow money from state coffers to be used for flood prevention measures. So, uh, Hannah, tell us more about this. Sure. Now, this is a revision to the Rivers Act, and this is intended to support the implementation of anti-flooding measures. And this was passed by the National Assembly with 249 votes in favor out of the 250 lawmakers present. Now, the bill was passed in a plenary session with an overwhelming approval rate, regardless of political party. Now, the swift decision came about two weeks after catastrophic flooding and landslides in central South Korea, which took nearly 50 lives and ruined people's homes and livelihoods. At least 14 people died when a river burst its banks due to heavy rain and flooded an underpass in Osong in a matter of minutes. Now, until now, um, local governments were responsible for these regional rivers and they experienced budgetary problems for maintenance and repair. Now, the, the amendment allows the state to provide financial support for the maintenance of designated regional river, rivers currently conducted by local governments whose water levels may change due to potential flooding downstream by rivers maintained by the state. And the assembly also passed revisions to water system management and support Support for uh, residents near the Kumgang, Nakdonggang, Yongsanggang, and Tomjinggang rivers, with the revisions setting the legal framework for uh, water-related disasters such as droughts and floods. These residents can use the water system management budget for disaster prevention measures. So the revised laws will be enacted as soon as the government publishes them. And the legislation for the Anti-Flooding Act in urban areas, on the other hand, was not discussed at. Thursday's uh, plenary session. The central part of the act is to actually establish a national countermeasures committee under the environment minister and to systematically uh, promote urban flood prevention plans with other related ministries. So the National Assembly Le Legislation and Judiciary Committee said since it's a legislative action, more discussion is needed, but it also added that the goal is to process the uh, legislation at next month's plenary session. Always in cases like this, the, my curiosity is who is that one person who either voted against or abstained from this? Because this is one of those rare times mm -hmm. that uh, all parties can kind of agree 
uh, need for mm -hmm. the revision of this. Uh, speaking of which, uh, we can say that the monsoon season is done and over with, which for all of our listeners out there, when we say monsoon season is done and over with, it's not necessarily a good thing because after the monsoon raise, uh, season comes the intense heat. Uh, mm -hmm. It's humid, it's hot, it's stuffy, and it, it, it's disgusting. It, it is net. I had the worst time trying to sleep yesterday. Uh, we, I had some of the worst, what was it, some of the worst tropical nights mm -hmm. I've experienced before. Uh, South Korea is, of course, experiencing this heat wave. Temperatures predicted to reach around 35 degrees Celsius. Jiang, uh, let's talk about the latest uh, weather situation. Yeah, in the past couple of days, it seems as though there's a, a hot hairdryer that's, that's right in front of your face. But it won't uh, change for the next few days, at least until tomorrow, Saturday the 29th, because we will see the whole nation sweltering in the grip of high heat and humidity. Uh, and we're expecting heat indexes to reach around 35 degrees Celsius in most parts of the country. And it's crucial that everyone takes extra care, hydrating and replenishing salt and avoiding any strenuous outdoor activity. Now, the forecast does pre also does predict some heavy downpours in certain areas as well, along with a side of thunderstorm and gusty winds. While that might give us a momentary respite from the heat, uh, don't be fooled because once the showers pass, we're back to the sweltering heat. And to top it all off, uh, we've been having these tropical nights, as uh, what you pref uh, as you mentioned, SJ. Uh, now these are particularly in urban and coastal areas, and these are those uncomfortable nights where even after the sun sets, the temperature stubbornly refuses to dip below 25 degrees. So, folks, please embrace yourselves. But there's also some good news as well because air quality should be good to. Mod, um, from moderate. Yeah, I, I uh, go to work uh, every day at around, uh, what time do I go? Like 5.30ish is when I leave the house. And at 5.30, it was at 27 degrees uh, this morning. So mm -hmm. it's ridiculous. And I was uh, talking to our chief producer earlier today, and I was telling him, because he plays baseball. We, we all play on the Arirang baseball mm -hmm. team. And I was uh, going... I, you know, I'm, I'm busy on Saturdays now with some stuff, and I don't think I can play baseball for the rest of the summer. And he was like, why are you smiling as you're saying this right now? Because <laughs> it's dangerous playing baseball in these weather. It's like 2 o'clock games. I can't do this. But uh, also, uh, it, it's not just these intense heat waves, and the intense heat is not just, uh, you know, isolated here in South Korea. I mean, a number of other countries worldwide mm -hmm. are experiencing this, especially like in the U.S. Uh, and in Europe. Uh, we had some really concerning news from the U.N. regarding climate change. Uh, let's uh, t discuss a little bit more on that front. Uh, sure. Uh, now, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres broke some sobering uh, news recently, and uh, he suggested that we've actually moved past the stage of mere global warming. And in fact, according to uh, him, we've already entered a phase that he describes as a global tropicalization. And he shared these thoughts while speaking about the latest discoveries from the European 
Union's climate watchdog, which noted some alarming high temperatures uh, during the initial half of July. And speaking candidly, Guterres painted a bleak picture of our future, underscoring the fact that where we are now with climate change is just the tip of the iceberg. But despite the grim prognosis, he didn't just leave us with uh, that worrying forecast. He also called on nations around the globe to make immediate decisive action. And in this view, there's still an opportunity to cap global temperature increases at 1.5 degrees Celsius and sidestep the most catastrophic outcomes. And also, it's a powerful reminder that while our situation is serious, it's not yet hopeless. You know, I was uh, I actually did watch uh, his uh, speech and uh, mm-hmm. he, he, he said we're out of the era of global warming. You know, the global warming is a terminology, by the way, for our listeners out there that was even talked about when I was in elementary school. Mm-hmm. Where And I was, a, you know, a little third grade or fourth grade and then global warming. I was like, what is global warming? He said now we're in a phase of global boiling, which is it sounds, you know, Dangerous. Very dangerous. It sounds scary, but uh, the fact of the matter is, I mean, you look at uh, some of the temperatures that are coming out, uh, it's ridiculous. Like, somewhere like the U.S., like 50 degrees, and it's not mm-hmm. even uh, Death Valley. I wonder how much hotter uh, Death Valley is. But speaking of which, uh, weather authorities in the United States issuing heat warnings and heat advisories for half of the U.S. population. Some are saying that severe heat may disrupt the power supply in the United States. Uh, Hannah, you have more on this. Yes. Well, with the entire United States in the throes of a heat wave, 170 million people, which is more than half the U.S. population, are reportedly under a heat advisory or heat warning. So the U.S. Weather Prediction Center announced on Thursday that the entire U.S., including the central states, the east coast, and the southwest region, is under a heat advisory. And the National Weather Service has also issued uh, heat advisories and heat warnings in some places, saying dangerous conditions are possible with the apparent temperature reaching 46 degrees or higher. And the National Weather Service forecasts extreme heat to spread from the central states to the east coast and last for at least 29 days, noting that heat is the leading cause of weather-related deaths and urging caution. And the heat wave is also threatening to disrupt power supplies. In fact, PJM Interconnection, the nation's largest electricity grid operator, issued a stage one energy emergency alert along with a current overload alert for 13 states in the eastern and central United States today, according to Bloomberg and other media outlets. They also noted, we have instructed all power plants to run at full capacity to keep power supply stable, and we have notified some consumers to prepare to reduce their power usage. Yeah, luckily here in South Korea, we don't experience these uh, major power outages often, but mm. uh, I remember when I lived in the U.S., I remember one year, I think this was back in 2000-something, uh, uh, there was, at the, he- the heart of the summer, uh, there was a massive power outage that uh, wiped out basically all of uh, northeastern uh, United States, mm-hmm. including New York City, and uh, no air conditioner, no fans, mm-hmm. and uh, at nights, uh, you know, people just had their, you know, there were a lot of people just outside, uh, you know, some people camping outside, uh, sleeping out in the streets because it was much cooler than sleeping inside, but uh, it is very concerning. 46 degrees is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. These are numbers you're not supposed to be seeing in the United States, uh, only maybe like in Death Valley, but um, nevertheless, 
climate climate crisis is real, people. Mm -hmm. Guys, thank you very much for your reports. Have a fantastic weekend, and uh, we'll see you guys again. Thank Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.